Hi, I'm Ron Gilbert, and welcome to the weekly Thimbleweed Park stand-up meeting podcast. And I am joined by David Fox. Hey, I'm here. And Gary Winnick. Uh, me too. And uh, what we do is we usually go through and we just talk about what we had did last week and what we're going to do next week. And we're going to do that, but we're also going to do something a little bit different on this one. We've asked uh, for people to submit questions on the dev blog, and we've gathered up a bunch of those, and we're going to go ahead and answer those. So let's very quickly do our stand-up, and then we will get to the questions. And let's start with Gary. Okay, so um, right now I'm trying to figure out, uh, you know, done enough work, I think, on sort of figuring out, uh, I will say, the level of detail on animated characters. I think we're close to that. So the level of detail in render, you know, I think have, we have a good concept about that. So starting to work on all of the kind of permutations. Right now we're working on the permutations of talking. So Ron and I are actually working to figure out, you know, we will have head bobbing. We will have, you know, I believe five mouth frames. And we're just sort of going through and figuring out the best way to organize that. Because although we've done it before, there is a little bit of, you know, reorganize. I think in terms of old school or new school, I think trying to sort of optimize reorganization of frames is something that you look at every time you do a project. And we're looking at that a little bit differently than we have in the past. One thing for certain is we don't have the memory constraints we had previously. So I think that, you know, we'll be figuring that over the next week or so, but that's pretty much what I'm concentrating on right now is the talking part of this. I, I could sure. always, I could always cap the memory at 64 K. Oh, there you go. If we yeah. want to really have that authentic I think experience. if we capped it at 64K, I think we were done like a few weeks ago. Maybe we should just ship the damn thing. Okay, uh, David. Uh, well, we, we did this great walkthrough um, on Wednesday where we went through the first part of the game together, each of us on our own computers talking on Skype, and took notes about things we wanted to change, things that weren't working quite right, found some bugs that popped up. So for... So I fixed a bunch of those, maybe a dozen or so bugs based on that. Spent the rest of the time working on a contest with, within the game and getting the dialogue and stuff like that working. All right, great. Uh, last week I did more work on dialogues, uh, getting some of the opening stuff in. I dropped the first piece of music into the game. I don't know if you guys heard that or not, but there's actually music in the opening now. Oh, it's in the opening? Okay, yeah, cool. in the opening. So that's, uh, that's pretty good. So yeah, just a lot of dialogue work and then uh, fixing bugs. Whenever David starts working on stuff, so I, I know there's going to be several engine bugs that I have to go fix, so I spent a lot of time uh, doing that. And next week, uh, uh, assuming that uh, Gary gets the talking stuff in, I'll write all the code uh, to do all the talking for the for the characters. So we should have, hopefully by the end of the week, we should have full talking characters in the game as well. All right, so that is our stuff, and now let's go to the questions. A couple of days ago, we asked the readers on the blog to submit questions. So I think what we're going to do now is answer some of your questions. So the first question comes from Jasco2000. What are the main drawbacks of not having a traditional publisher? I.e., are there any things that you do, you'd like to do that would be much easier with a traditional publisher? With a Microsoft deal, do you worry that you, you'll lose your indie street cred? Along the same lines, where is that line officially crossed? I think one of the big drawbacks to not having a publisher is is having this 
third party, this other person who's watching things. And it, it is it is very easy to get lost in what you're doing. And, and I and I do think having that other voice out there is good. As long as the publisher isn't, you know, overly demanding and making ridiculous suggestions and all that. But a good publisher will just be this other voice that uh, you know, can help kind of keep a project going. And I do miss that a little bit. I, you know, I wish I wish we had enough money to really hire a producer that could really go through and and produce the stuff so I think that is one big advantage of a traditional um, publisher um, in terms of the Microsoft deal and losing you know the indie street cred um, Microsoft really isn't the publisher of this game at all they they have no say in the game they you know have no choice they're really just a distributor of the game so they're really they really aren't a publisher and I do believe that is um, a lot of the line you know, with, uh, you know, whether you're truly an indie developer. It's not really about are you taking money from somebody to distribute your game. It's really do you have a publisher that's calling the shots or not. So to me, that's the line. The next question is from Pollup. Do you think Thimbleweed Park has an advantage in that you were able to learn from some of the other adventure games' mistakes? And if you had been the first Kickstarter adventure game, do you think you would have done things differently and been more likely to have succumbed to the same pitfalls that the other games had? Yeah, that's a really good question because, you know, when Gary and I started the Kickstarter, we spent a lot of time looking at the other games and what they had done right and what they had done wrong. And I think our biggest lesson in all this was not to overhype stuff and to not get caught up in making promises that we couldn't keep. And we were very careful about that. And at the end of the day, we probably could have raised more money had we gone out and really hyped the game and you know made a lot of promises and stuff, but we just we didn't want to do that. And I think that was the thing um, that we really learned. And honestly, I can't say had we been the first you know, adventure game to be kickstarted that we wouldn't have made all of the same mistakes that everyone else made. But we, you know, had the advantage of being able to learn from those. Next question is from Michael Huffman. A couple of weeks ago in the blog post Design Dilemma, you asked the users for help designing a specific puzzle. Were you able to use one or maybe a combination of several of those suggestions? Yeah, we were. We, we got a lot of really good suggestions, and there there were a couple of suggestions that we combined into a single solution. So I think when you actually play the game, if you go back through the comments, you'll you'll definitely see that we used uh, we used a solution uh, from the blog for that. And the next question is from Jape, spelled J-A-A-P. I hope I got that right. Did one of you guys ever start a game project and just quit after you got fed up with it or your limited budget or the concept turned out to be too ambitious? Uh, the answer to that is yes, all the time. There are lots of games that I have started, and mostly I started into the game and did a, got it up to a prototype stage and just realized it probably wasn't that fun anyway you know it's, it, I think doing things with games is about doing a lot of things it's trying a lot of different stuff so there have been lots of games that I have started and never finished um, I'm gonna add to that certainly um, every company that I've ever worked at probably started 50% of the stuff they started or maybe more never got made you know never never saw the light of day would you guys agree with that yeah I would I think that's just a normal part of the process you know you start something and if it's not working you kill it yeah liquid starts I remember doing a bunch of design docs that never moved out of the concept stage, like the one one to two pager. And I remember several that got much longer that never made it beyond that stage, uh, either for funding or for whatever reasons. 
more recently for me, since I'm doing my own games, then that's not as much an issue. I can decide to finish or not finish. So, But yeah, actually, there's one that I wanted to do that I got pushed back because other things became higher priorities. So I had to kind of push it aside. Yeah, I think that stuff happens all the time. I do think... You know, one of the things that Kickstarter has exposed a little bit is, you know, people will kickstart a game and, you know, at a, at a normal company, you might have started that game and then the game might have been killed because it wasn't working out well. But when you're doing Kickstarter, you can't really do that, right? I mean, we couldn't have gotten, you know, five months into Thimbleweed Park and decided, oh, this really isn't, you know, that good of a game. Let's kill it and work on something else where where you could do that if you worked at a company because it's all, you know, kind of happening behind closed doors. And, and I think that's good. I think it's good that you can kill projects that aren't working rather than having to take something that's not working and put it out anyway. That is kind of one of the downsides, you know, to the Kickstarter stuff in my mind. I'm going to say quickly, certainly for all creative endeavors, whether it's movies or comics or anything, I would say most of the stuff that people work on doesn't see the light of day. Uh, you know, once again, it's probably 50% or less projects that people actually start in the kind of professional entertainment business that actually see the light of day. Yeah, very true. Okay, so the next question we have is from Andy Hall, and uh, they ask, uh, were you ever tempted to use specifically old school tools like D-Paint under emulation for that extra bit of authenticity? And are there any drawbacks to using modern tools to recreate that look? Um, well, in my case, I've had enough of uh, using tools in the 70s and 80s and 90s. Uh, I actually uh, like the tool I'm using right now, which is uh, Photoshop. Uh, in my estimation, it is far above superior to a tool like dpaint even though dpaint was a really cool tool in those days there are so many more features and functions and then the speed even i guess if it was emulated i don't i haven't played with dpaint on an emulator but i don't know if the speed would even approach what i'm used to using right now if there's any kind of lag time or not but long story short all my reflexes have been sort of tailored to working with photoshop over the last probably 10 years at least so i'm very comfortable with that and I really am nostalgically not, you know, attracted to old school tools that much. I'm really more interested in creating an old school look, but I want to use the most modern, up-to-date, and effective tools I have. Okay, the next question I have is from Necrosis Thanatos. I hope I pronounced that right. I'm sorry if I, did, if I butchered it. Uh, will there be any gratuitous T&A in Thimbleweed Park? Well... I think that, um, you know, we probably will have some gratuitous uh, tomatoes and apples, possibly. We'll have tomato juice, applesauce. We'll have to, we'll have to watch our rating if, if, yeah, we, if but, we do a lot of tomatoes and apples. Yeah, but I, 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 I may hide them in the game somewhere, but definitely I, I, see, I see, you know, there's a lot of good vitamins in tomatoes and apples. So I think that for a healthy <laughs> diet, you need those. So, yeah, yeah, I think so. Okay, the next question I have is from Dan. Uh, will the characters nod when they are speaking as they did in the bobblehead era? Well, uh, I think I sort of mentioned that Ron and, actually, and I are actually working on that right now. And so, yes, they're, they're, uh, there will be nodding when they talk. And uh, we're working on organizing that right now. We're going to optimize that. But I think that, you know, you definitely, it just, everything 
from Maniac looked so wooden and stiff. And although we're still doing an homage to a classic game since, you know, kind of in a period of time between Monkey Island and Maniac and in Monkey Island, the characters did not. And I think that, you know, the larger heads kind of, it's necessary to have some head motion when they're talking. Otherwise it looks really strange, I think. So yes, we, we are, we will, and we are. Okay, the next question, uh, and this one's really uh, for each of us. Uh, Andy Hall asks, is only six months in, but if you were to do this again, what is the biggest thing that you would do differently, if anything? So I'll, I'll start with my answer. I, you know, I really don't know that there is anything differently I would do. You know, at this, at this point, I think things have been going quite well. I think the engine's in a really good place and, uh, you know, the art looks fantastic and I'm really happy with the design. So I don't know that I would do anything different. Of course, you know, ask us that question again in a year and you may get a very different answer, but right now I'm, I'm very happy. Uh, I guess, I don't know if I would do anything differently, uh, in terms of the process. I mean, knowing what I know today, like there's a lot of stuff that we did that we're, I'm going to use the word were kind of false start, especially on the art front where we were trying to figure out how things would look. And certainly when I first started, I was expecting it would look more like Maniac Mansion and it's turned out to look more like I'm going to say a, uh, a synthesis uh, of, of sort of Maniac evolved a little bit closer to Monkey Island, especially with Mark's stuff. So the only thing that I probably would have liked to have done differently is – been kind of more aware of what this was going to look like earlier on, but I don't know if I could have achieved that without having gone through the process we've gone through for the last six months. So uh, other than that, I'm pretty happy. I think that the, probably the, the one thing I, I tend to work and put a lot of polish on stuff as I'm doing it. And I think the drawback to that is that if something I put more time into and polished ends up getting changed or cut, then that's more energy that was lost so I think maybe I would have done more of a first pass kind of a thing on a few places just in case it got changed and then come back later and, and do the polish after we were sure it's going to stay in. Okay, the next question is from Peter. If you crash the egg in Zach, it is not possible to get the oxygen tank in the airplane. Then you have a problem on Mars. What should I do in Zach McCracken? And is it possible that you guys could create a new Zach McCracken game? I actually don't remember this. Um, I guess he means cracking the egg. Um, for sure, back when we were doing those games, I don't think we had the same edict that you can't have a dead end. That, you know, that just added to replayability or, or more time. You go back and start over if you didn't get it right the first time. So that wasn't a core part of the design philosophy. We did want to avoid arbitrary deaths or deaths that were not uh, telegraphed ahead of time. Um, so they didn't seem just gratu gratuitous. I mean, jumping out of an airplane without a parachute, you're probably going to die. So that was something we didn't have to protect you against. But it sounds like you reached a dead end and you probably have to start over and, and don't break the egg. If, we, if I were to do that now, we'd probably give you a chicken so you can get another egg out of the chicken or something. <laughs> patch. Patch. <laughs> patch. <laughs> um, for, is it possible that you guys could create another Zach McCracken? Well, this is the same answer to the other questions. We, we saw a bunch of questions relating to like uh, another Monkey Island, or and really the rights to all those games belong to Disney. You know, there are two ways to go. One is to try to negotiate the rights for a license from Disney and then have them, you know, then they still own it and we get to do it and get some amount of the proceeds. I don't think they're likely to ever sell complete rights to one of these 
in a way where we have ownership. And yeah, if you don't own the game when you're doing the game, it, it's harder to be as passionate about it because you know you're just doing this to, to line someone else's coffers. Also, you, you don't have control. You know, right. if, if you were to license Zach from Disney, you know, they would really have you know, the final say and what you did in the game and they would have control of the game and there's just a lot of stuff. And I, I think for me, that's the biggest reason that I would not want to do a Monkey Island that was a license deal because I really wouldn't have the control to make the game that I wanted to make. Okay, we have a question from Tomit. I It's T-O-M-I-M-T. As we know, this will be an old school adventure game, but as we also know, old school games could have some design choices that are relatively poor from as far as gameplay goes, dead ends, excessive pixel hunting, unintuitive puzzles, moon logic. I don't know what that is. Where do you draw the line with those? What are the old school elements you won't use? That's definitely something we've been talking a lot about during the design process. I think some of the old school adventure games that had those were before we learned enough that those weren't really any fun. You know, as Ron said before, we've learned a lot in the, in the last few decades of doing games and want to avoid as much of that as possible. We're, we're not trying to make the game last longer by making it tedious. Um, it should be fun all the way through. And I'm curious what Moon Logic is, too. Sounds fascinating. <laughs> I gotta look it up. <laughs> <laughs> All right, there's a question from Dan. It says, Ron, you wrote, that, you wrote that this will be the fourth adventure game engine you've built. I only know of the Scum Engine. What are the other two? Uh, well, the first one was definitely the Scum Engine. Um, after that, I did another engine, which was called uh, Sauce, that we did some adventure games for. And then after that was the engine that was used uh, for Deathbank. And then uh, this will be the fourth one. So those are the four engines. And that's if you don't include... Something like uh, Graphics Basic, which was the basic extension for the Commodore 64 I did. I don't know if that was really an engine, but certainly Graphics Basic kind of got me, you know, I kind of fell in love with doing languages and stuff from creating that, which, you know, definitely Scum came from. I mean, that was your first job, right? You, I mean, somebody actually licensed Graphics Basic from you and that became your first job in the industry, right? Yeah, I'd, I'd done Graphics Basic and then I sent it off to a company, you know, to see if they would publish it and they you know, said they would publish it and then they offered me a job. So, yeah. And I think, David, you want to do the next one? Yeah, when I go back to Moon Logic. So, Moon Logic. <laughs> Twisted logic that seems tailor-made to frustrate you. This kind of logic has two common reactions on discovering the answer. If well-written, the answer will make complete, brilliant sense in hindsight. Otherwise, the clues that would have led to the solution seem so out of left field that it leaves you wond leaves one wondering... How is one supposed to ever think of that? Yeah, that's interesting. I, I actually didn't know that there was a term for that. Yeah. No, of course we won't have any of that. <laughs> Here's a question from Bogdan Barbu, B-O-G-D-A-N-B-A-R-B-U. This is going to be controversial in this community, but I expect that as VR picks up in the next couple of years, first-person first adventure games will be a natural place to go. I know 2D point-and-click adventure games have their charm, but I'm talking about something else now. What are your thoughts on this new medium that puts so much emphasis on the experience for the adventure games? And I just want to just mention something about this. I mean, I've, I've been looking at, at immersive types of adventure gaming since the late 80s, 
you know, when VR first became popular and, and the next thing back in the early, you know, like 90, 1990, 91, 92, I definitely think it's going to have a place, but I think it's kind of like taking, if you just take a 2D graphic adventure game and plop it down in a 3D space, I don't think it's going to be successful. It's kind of like, you know, going to a, a, a movie that's in 3D, you have some additional things that you can make use of that you want to take advantage of and make sure that it, it it's being used to its best. I mean, it, 3D generally means it's going to be immersive. Probably means you're you don't have a, a third person character that you're moving around as much as you're you're the character that's moving around for it to be really like you're in it. And I absolutely think there's a place for this. I just think it's going to be a new, totally new experience and reinventing everything. Although I, taking what we know about the puzzles and the fun part about 2D adventure games, that could that could come about. But you're, you're really going for a much more immersive feel rather than kind of like a removed stage experience. And our last question is from DZJ. And he says, uh, can you give a bit of detail on the technology available in the early 1980s to create video games from your own personal experience? For instance, was it all C64s and people punching in assembly language opcodes, or were there VAXs and PDPs with cross-compilers and emulators? Well, I can't really speak for what other people were doing, but certainly at Lucasfilm, that kind of is exactly how we did things. The Commodore 64 was hooked up to these Unix machines and we did all of our coding and all of our compiling. You know, we had an, an assembler that, we, you know, we would do 6502 stuff and it would compile the game. Then it was all just uploaded to the Commodore 64. And, uh, you know, I think the same thing was true with Gary in the art is, you know, he would do the art on the Commodore, but the Unix machine was doing all the saving and loading, you know, sucking the data from the Commodore in and out. So we never had to save anything on the floppy disks of the Commodore. It was all done by the uh, Unix machines. Yeah, I mean, uh, Chip Morningstar, who people may have heard of, was our tools guy, and he wrote a lot of, of stuff. I mean, he wrote assemblers and compilers i mean i remember things like macross and stuff like that unless i'm misremembering that just because i'm an artist and don't remember the actual names for things but i know that chip created a whole bunch of tools that we use to do what you're saying am i remembering that correctly or what yeah i mean going back to the very first games we did when we were doing games for the atari we were using a lisp cross assembler on a vax 750 and then running it through a serial port to the Ataris, which loaded the games and then played them. Then when we switched to Commodore 64, we had, um, I think Kevin Furry built a parallel card that took data from our Sun workstations and converted it to parallel data and, and plopped it into the Commodore 64. And I mean, all the scum scripting was definitely done in Emacs and all the compiling was done then they just would download. So it was way faster throughput than if we had to do it on the target machine. Yeah, it was one thing was really nice about the about our, our connection, you know, the, the Commodore sixty four connection is is you know, we could halt the machine and then we could examine any piece of memory, you know, from the Unix terminal. And that was really nice for debugging because you could do full memory dumps. You could modify memory and everything just through the parallel connection that connected them. It was a wonderful development environment. All right. Well, I think that wraps up the questions, unless you guys have anything else to add. Yeah, I just want to thank everyone for all the questions. And sorry for all those who, whose questions we didn't get to ask. 
or answer. Or for the people's names we mispronounce. <laughs> I'm sure we'll do this again at some point. So maybe you can ask those questions again. You, you can let us know on your comments of the podcast how much you enjoyed or not enjoyed this part of the entertainment. Yeah, if, peop if people liked it, we're happy to do it again. All right. Well, I will see you guys later. Okay. Bye-bye. Ciao. Bye.